You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 195. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Uh, Today is one of those on-the-road solo shows that I used to do, kind of... uh, uh, traveling a little bit in Miami right now. I will uh, I'll get to that in a little bit. First, I want to ask, did you ever wish that you didn't forget so much? Well, you're tra- you're probably thinking right now that I am about to give you some kind of ad. <laughs> Maybe I am. Maybe I've resorted to hawking pills like, uh, like the rest of them. Well, no, I'm not. Um, just want to make the point. Obviously, memory problems are one thing. But what if I told you, or, well, I mean, look, you just think about it a little bit, that you wouldn't be able to function. You wouldn't be able to survive if your mind wasn't designed to forget things every now and then, it's actually a functioning, uh, a part of a functioning mind. Um, sometimes I wish that like everything was there deep down and you could always access it. And then, uh, you know, you can sort of uh, keep the important things in front of mind, but you know, that's not how it works. And then for good reason, uh, you know, the only way to understand the world is to have kind of a smaller map of it, an approximation of it um, internally. And you really have to determine what, uh, is useful and what is valuable to have in that map. Map has to uh, uh, remove some of the details of of the world around you uh, because there's limited space and very large maps are inefficient. And a perfect map is is the universe itself. And so the the, the only well, I, I don't know who said this, but the only model for the universe that's perfect is the universe itself, and that is not a very useful model. Uh, so yes. That's how we work. Same thing goes with machines. Same thing goes with algorithms. We don't build a machine to capture the entire universe, and we don't even write algorithms to capture and process every single scrap of data that's available. No. And that's why we sample. That's what sampling is about. So as promised, I'm going to get to that in this solo show in a bit. But first, uh, I just want to talk about uh, where I am. I'm in Miami right now. I don't really know what I'm doing here in Miami for a few days. I came from the uh, Tom Woods 2000th episode podcast event in Orlando. Uh, so I went down there. First, I went to uh, New York City for a few days, uh, Connecticut. I'm kind of combining all these trips together. Um, so anyway, I was, I was at that event. Uh, uh, Tom Woods has gotten to 2000 episodes, and I actually remember his first episode. So I've been listening to that one for a long time. Uh, he's, you know, he's a really great uh, speaker and explainer, really compelling. And I listened to podcasts before that, but I would mostly catch them online or on YouTube or whatever. But this was that was the first podcast that actually got me to start using the podcast app on my phone. That was my podcast because that was back in 2013. Um, and if you'll notice, uh, his podcast, as well as a few others, uh, announces the episode number at the beginning. I decided to do that too. Uh, but uh, well, I don't know if I'm going to keep keep doing that after a redesign, but uh, it's I. Why do we do that? Hmm. I don't know. I feel like it makes it easier when you turn on the episode to know what you're listening to, so you you know, you know right away that you're not listening to the right one, rather than being like, "Huh, what what is this?" And then five minutes in, being like, "Oh, okay, this is not what I'm thinking." Um, and then people could point out errors a lot faster. But anyway, uh, the event was a lot of fun. I, I loved how he started it off with, um, you know, my podcast is about uh, learning things, but today no one's going to learn anything. And it was just kind of a, a fun uh, sort of get together that went on for <laughs> kind of a long time. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so I, uh, I, I had a great time. I combined that with the Miami trip. So I'm in Miami now. 
as I usually do, kind of go to Miami to relax. But now I'm here and I'm like, why am I here? I don't know. So maybe you'll find me on the beach um, in one of those bungalows uh, doing some work in a notebook and, uh, and reading a book thinking like, yeah, I'm the smartest person on this beach. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so anyway, I'll go back uh, Wednesday to New Hampshire and uh, back to the Northeast. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to that because I've got a lot to do. Um, all right. So before we get into the sampling topic, there are a few news items that I want to get to. First is a story in Wired and its opinion about why we need a bill of rights for artificial intelligence. Now, you read this article and you think it's some concerned citizen, but uh, actually it's, well, I guess you could say it's a concerned citizen, but it's really... Um, it, it, it it's really coming from the government. It's coming from the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and so they, you know, they're saying that we may need an AI Bill of Rights, uh, but really what they want is they want to use the government to tell people what they can and can't build. And so I kind of think I, I as reading through it, I, I sort of think, is this really about AI or is it again about statistics or really about decision makings? Because we talked about this in episode 170 when someone uh, proposed uh, you know, uh, uh, regulating Bayesian inference. And it's like, it's very hard to regulate math. How do you regulate using a math formula? I guess you could try. I guess you could go you know, do random inspections and be like, ah, that's a, that's a sigma loop. What are you doing? Yeah, but uh, I think um, what they really end up doing practically is say, okay, here are the decisions you're allowed to make. Here's where you have to have uh, humans in the loop in order to make X and Y decisions. Uh, and so that's what this ends up being. Uh, the reasons why they say we need an AI Bill of Rights is they say, well, one, discrimination. They always go on discrimination. Two, loss of privacy. And three, actually, they mentioned state control, tyranny. Uh, and the, the term Bill of Rights is really great branding uh, because it brings to mind the original Bill of Rights, which says, you know, you have freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. And I guess that's all the First Amendment, um, you know, but, but there, there are other ones as well, right, right to a, um, right to a, a fair trial, all that. Um, but the original Bill of Rights has always been sort of uh, used as a as a tool to propose a new bill of rights. I know FDR proposed, uh, proposed a new bill of rights, but, uh, usually the, the, the original has never gotten, uh, eclipsed. Uh, we, we still have our original bill of rights. And does this proposal really have anything to do with the original bill of rights or is it just kind of a branding thing? It sounds to me, it's more of a, of a branding thing. One of the things that can, now I agree that, um, Certain aspects of the way machine learning is used, or, or let's just say computing is used in general, uh, there, there are right ways to go about it and wrong ways to go about it, particularly the way the government, governments go about it uh, in terms of loss of privacy. And so they're kind of promising they're going to curb this, but I'm, I'm a little skeptical. Uh, oftentimes in this proposal, there's sort of a vague, uh, vague offer of like avoiding harm. We're going to avoid harm that someone does with this algorithm. And that's sort of a dangerous, when you have something that vague, it's like, basically we could tell you to do whatever you want. Essentially, they're just going to come in and say, you're not making the decisions we want you to. Here are the decisions that you have to make. So you're going to have to do better than that. You're going to have to be a little bit more specific than that if you want to propose an AI 
Bill of Rights. How about an AI Bill of Rights for the government? Uh, how about they won't use certain data to go after law-abiding citizens or launch frivolous investigations where they, you know, run algorithms on you that could determine if you're, you know, um, if you're a criminal or, or 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 a cheater or something when you know it's it's without actually having evidence, just having a having a, um, probabilities. If that's uh, if that becomes a problem, I certainly uh, support erecting a a barrier against that. But actually, I think we just need to apply the original Bill of Rights because I think that's covered in the original Bill of Rights. So there, fixed it. Perfect. Okay, on to the next one. The next one is from protocol.com. I haven't actually, I don't know what protocol.com is. I'm not going to look at it now. It's, I mean, it looks like some, I always have to make sure it's not from some crazy, um, crazy site. Um, but uh, let's see, about us. What does this say? I'm doing my, uh, our mission. Uh, we focus on people, politics, attack, no agenda, to arm decision makers and tech. Okay, well, it seems pretty straightforward. Uh, it, it seems like a, a good news source, but uh, you know, let me know if it's not. Um, anyway, the news item is tech's uh, big bad morale problem, and they're actually talking about uh, the fact that activist employees are now in charge of the industry or employees in general. You know, employees have a lot of power in these companies. And I often tell people, you have a lot more power than you think you do if you're like an engineer at these companies. Now, yes, if you if you leave your job and if you make an ultimatum, you're not gonna, just going to uh, fold and, and change the company all at once. But it does, it does hurt. They do notice. Um, and you could also like, you know, refuse to work on certain things or agree to work on certain things. And, and that does affect the direction of the company. But the people who are more organized, the activists, they're really in charge, and they kind of know how to shame the rank and file to make sure that everybody goes along with them. And I think that's kind of dangerous. If you look at Facebook, you look at Netflix, um, Netflix now, uh, the employees are trying to ban uh, Dave Chappelle. I actually watched his um, his special that um, I would say if I liked it, but I... I- I I I liked some of his stuff in the past. I didn't really uh, find his last one that funny. But look, it doesn't matter. You don't censor people, and that's what, um, or, or or you don't. I, I guess Netflix does have an editorial, um, an editorial responsibility, but uh, they're going way beyond it now. Where the uh, employees are saying, "Well, you can't say this, or you can't say that." Um, and, uh, and, and, and that's exactly what's happening. Uh, you look at Facebook as well and, you know, there are activists in Facebook. They don't want to take down Facebook, but they want to use Facebook towards their political ends. So that's, a that's a problem. I'm asking, you know, what about the silent majority? Brian Armstrong of Coinbase has a really interesting follow-up on their story when they said, you know what, we're not really doing politics at Coinbase. We're not doing activism at Coinbase. We just have, we, we, we are only doing those things insofar as it's part of our mission to bring crypto to the world. So I thought that was a really interesting strategy. And a few people left at the time, he got some uh, nasty articles in the New York Times. Uh, but he has an update and it looks like it's actually going much better. So I'd like to go over that at some point next time. Uh, next time I get a co-host, next time Aaron comes in. So uh, 
yeah, that is that is the, this is sort of along the lines of everything we've been talking about in the past, but now it's being framed as a morale problem. Employees are unhappy with their company and they're forcing change, but it it almost seems like the same thing that's been going on uh in in well i i kind of divide it into two strains once again like one there's the activist strain when they're really trying to force these companies to conform to the uh to a certain vision of society kind of against uh the um the interests of the shareholders or uh, uh, frankly the interests of the majority of the employees um, and then there's just kind of keeping your company in check. And sometimes it's hard to walk the line between both those things. So, okay, two things I'm keeping an eye on. Let me know what you think at localmaxradio at gmail.com if you have anything more to add. Or please sign up for the locals, maximum.locals.com. We have a lot of great discussions in there. Sometimes I have meetups from there. I've met some people who are on my on my uh, on my locals group um it's only four dollars a month and you kind of have access to me and aaron and and all the other people and uh and we talk about all the issues that are that are uh interesting to us uh <laughs> that that apply to us uh these days um and also all this fascinating stuff that we talk about like why do we sample and this is the reason i'm getting into this first of all it's a really important part of of statistical thinking and uh, machine learning. And so I've thought about this a lot. But uh, right now, I'm trying to finish up a an academic paper that I've been proposing for a long time, for like many, many years, uh, <laughs> that uh, now that uh, I've left my job, I'm finally going to try to finish it up and get back. I hope that when I get home, I could like wrap this thing up in a couple days, just dedicate a couple days to it and just get this thing out there because uh, it's been going on so long. Uh, so it's kind of forced me to look into ideas around sampling more. And the idea is, can you learn from sampled data? The answer is like, yes, you can learn from sampled data. In fact, oftentimes all data is sampled to some degree. And so the idea is, you know, if you if you're sampling data, if you're changing its shape, changing its form, uh, how do you anticipate that? How do you figure out? You know, well, if I'm only looking at a part of the whole, what might the whole look like? Um, that's that's the general problem there. Um, so, technically, let's start from the beginning. Like, let's start with the question: Why do we sample? Uh, I think technically. More information can only help us make a more informed decision. If you believe that, I mean, look, you know, there is information out there that's false, obviously false information, if taken as true, that could be harmful. But when we have a data set, when we have a, a set of information, we're first of all, we're making the assumption that there's good information in there overall. So we're not, you know, we're not just assuming that it's a pack of lies, or we are assuming that if it is a pack of lies, we can suss out the truth from it. So we think that in this data, otherwise you just throw the whole thing away. So we think that this data set here, um, for lack of a better term, is, uh, is helpful overall. That means each individual piece might not be helpful, but if we're going to throw away a chunk of it, 
each chunk that we throw away is going to be more helpful than hurtful on average. So we can't just say, well, we're throwing away this information because it's harmful unless we've already done some pre-processing. We already know something about it. So we already know like, like this stuff is false. Uh, so then, yes, you can filter those out, but that's not really what, what is usually going on. So if we don't know what's false beforehand, then it, it's tough to label as something is false. And so if we throw away true information, uh, theoretically, it seems like that information can only help us make a more informed decision. Uh, well, is that always true? I mean, d does true information always do no harm? Uh, I think for humans, that um, is not always true because humans can sometimes go, uh, just say you're given some information, humans can go emotionally haywire from certain pieces of true information. And it might be best to not know that for a while until you're getting something done. Uh, maybe not for machines, though, maybe not for algorithms. Maybe if we get true information, and we want to process that, um, we can only get better. But I wouldn't be surprised if there is there are examples of malicious attacks on certain algorithms where you could give it true information that could make them go haywire. So I'm not ready to give up on there, uh, on that. But I think that uh, I, I think that none of this is really uh, here nor there. I mean, all all of that is important, but I'm really talking about throwing away true information that, if processing it, would only make you better. But the, the, I think the big problem is that when you have more information, there are many, many costs associated with storing, reading, and processing that information. You, you need more space, you need more processing, you need more time. So even if information does no harm, um, then um, that could be a problem. Some information is completely useless, obviously. Uh, sometimes, you know, oftentimes when you're doing statistical analysis on a data set, you're trying to answer a particular question. It could be that you only need a small amount of data to answer that particular question. And the other data is, you know, the same, you can answer it with that data as well. But, um, you know, like if you're trying to find the average or the median of, of the data set, at some point, you're like, I've seen enough, I kind of know around where it is, and I don't need to know anymore. Um, and so some information is useless, some information is redundant. And some information, well, it only helps marginally. It might help you a little bit, but it's just not worth the cost. And therefore, sampling is done all over the place. Um, and then, of course, there's the sampling in the, uh, in the context of experimental design, where you have an entire... Um, that, that's often the case where you have like, you know, an entire population to sample from. And you obviously can't run the experiment on the entire population because, first of all, it takes, um, again, more time, more cost, more processing, all that stuff. But, uh, you know, for example, if it's a medical experiment, <laughs> you want to sample it on a small amount of the population because the cost is that if something goes wrong, something goes wrong on a large number of people, which you really don't want. So, um, therefore, you need sampling and you often need random sampling. There are different types of sampling out there. Um, one is like random sampling versus non-random sampling, which you know one type is endogenous sampling when you're sampling based on uh, what uh, you know what endogenous variables or what types of variables you want to see more of or less of. Random sampling is 
just when you um, generate random numbers and kind of sample based on that. The main question is, do we want to change the distribution of the data? Now, sometimes when you're doing purely random sampling, especially when the numbers are low, uh, you're still changing the distribution of the data. And so a lot of work has been done on that. I'm trying to remember my uh, podcast episode with uh, Adam Kapelner on experimental design back in episode 109 when we talked about that, how um, I want to try to uh, remember the exact formulation that we did. But essentially, um, when you randomize stuff, you uh, sometimes have to pick out uh, you you kind of you either have to pick and choose what you want, or you might have to take several random samples, uh, or you might have to take samples of your samples to see if you still get the same uh, same answer. Um, because otherwise, um, your your sampling could have an unintended effect, um, and uh, all this stuff is just useful to know. You know when people are making arguments um, and and that sort of thing. Um, Secondly, another one that I ran into recently, and I actually did not know these buzzwords, even though they're very simple, is simple random sampling versus Bernoulli sampling. So Bernoulli sampling, which I kind of, um, I kind of call that more like uh, uh, point-wise sampling, is when you're sort of flipping a coin for each individual data point, uh, and you're saying, is this going to be in and out of the set? Um, and it could be, you know, it could it could be a, a weighted coin or whatever. Um, Bernoulli sampling is a very good if you want to do this in parallel. So if you want to sample a very large data set uh, and you don't want to do it all at once, you could break it into little chunks and then each chunk could be sampled with Bernoulli sampling because you're just doing it one at a time. Uh, simple random sampling, the name... I don't like this name. I almost want it to be like set-wise sampling and point-wise sampling. So for example, if, if you're doing Bernoulli sampling and I'm sampling 50% of my data and I start out with a million points, then I should end up with around 500,000 points, but it's not going to be exactly 500,000 points. In fact, I could have any number of points between zero and a million um, because there's no... Essentially, if, if I'm sampling everything 50-50, then every subset is equally likely. Um, it's just that there are a lot more subsets with around 500,000 than there are other subsets. And uh, and then, of course, each subset is not equally likely if your sampling is, um, if you're using a weighted coin for that. So, um, but be that as it may, still... Bernoulli sampling, unless you're sampling at a rate of zero for 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 some points, in which case um, I should point out uh, that's uh, that's no longer Bernoulli sampling. But um, you, you're essentially you could have any combination of points uh, is possible. Simple random sampling is like no, I have a million points and I want you to pick out exactly a hundred thousand. So rather than Bernoulli sampling at one-tenth, where I end up at around 100,000, I'm saying I want exactly 100,000 points. And so that is much harder to do in parallel because you kind of have to know how many points you have to begin with. You kind of have to pick um, 
you kind of have to pick random values. You have to count exactly how many you have. So simple random sampling, if you have a big data set, could actually be a lot harder. And I'm not really sure how to do it in parallel. Now, there is kind of a sectional version of simple random sampling where it's like, okay, I want 100,000 points. Um, I'm going to break the set into uh, you know 10 random pieces and sample um, sample 10,000 from each of those pieces. So is that um, is that the the same? Is that you know if I do some Bernoulli sampling where I essentially throw a 10-sided die for each one to figure out which, uh, you know, which section it's going to go in and then sample 10 from each section. Uh, it, does that end up being uh, the, the, uh, the same as a simple random sample? I think it might. I think it might, but it might get a lot more complicated. And it's a lot more complicated to build algorithms around that, that, um, that, uh, uh, that corrects for that, whereas Bernoulli sampling is a lot easier. There's also the idea of Bernoulli sampling versus Poisson sampling, uh, which is, it's, I really don't like these names because everything in statistics is either named after Bernoulli or Poisson. And uh, th- that's not what I think of when I think of Bernoulli and Poisson, not, not in terms of sampling, but I guess they had to look into sampling <laughs> as well. Bernoulli sampling is when you flip a die for each, uh, or flip a coin for each data point. And Poisson sampling is if the coin has a different weight for each data point. And again, it could be like endogenous sampling. You could be um, you could be sampling um, uh, uh, based on you know I want more of these types of points, but less of those types of points. A good example is if you think not in terms of machine learning, but of human learning. I like to give this example: is like you want to try to learn what a what a lion is. You have a bunch of pictures of animals, and some of them are lions, but very few of them. You have like 20 cards that are lions, and you have like uh, 10,000 cards. Well, it really doesn't help you learn what a lion is if you randomly shuffle that humongous deck, and most of the animals on there are not lions. But let's say you take out the 20 lions, you sample them at a rate of one, and everything else, you have a tiny sample rate. So you end up with 20 lions and maybe, okay, 40 or 50 non-lions, then you look at that deck and you could learn what a lion is pretty quickly. So I, I, I usually like that example of, well, if, if that's sort of an example of an imbalanced uh, target variable data set. So sometimes sampling to balance the data can make uh, algorithms a lot more efficient. Um, you might think it's impossible to learn what a lion is if you have, you know, a human would get bored with that many uh, with, with that many uh, false data points. A machine can learn what a lion is with a small number of, uh, so long as there's enough examples uh, of lions and then many, many, many examples with non-lions that is just processing through. But I think it would take a lot longer than if you just removed some of those. So that's always a good idea. Then there's a, a, an example of undersampling versus oversampling. Undersampling is what we've been talking about so far where you remove some data. There's also the idea of oversampling, where you take some data points and you add them in twice. Why would you want to do that? Um, that's sort of uh, that's sort of interesting. Well, uh, it, it's sort of a a simple way of hey, I want to tell my algorithm pay really close attention to these points over here 
even though uh, they're and and not as much uh, to these points over here. And one way to do that is to simply include it twice. Just say, "Oh, I've seen that happen twice," and um, and that happens. Uh, an example of oversampling would be like bootstrapping, where you can kind of um, uh, do you could take a a Poisson distribution. I know you guys don't know it. Not well. I I know. I, I shouldn't say you guys don't know. I'm sure a lot of you know what a Poisson distribution is, but I'm not going to presume that I've lost a lot of people here. But uh, essentially, each point you say, okay, I could remove it, I could keep it, or I could add it multiple times, and um, essentially you end up with a data set that is around the same size, but some things have been removed and some things have been added twice. And so that's kind of a bootstrapped sample. And so it changes your data set a little bit. And so if you run that a couple times, you can kind of make sure, you know, whatever your analysis is, is robust. Like it doesn't, um, it, it, you don't get a completely different answer if you shift things around a little bit, which is always um, something good that you want to know. Uh, because if something changes a lot when you like remove or add a data point, that means that like, you know, one false move and your entire model comes crumbling down, uh, which is uh, which is not what you want. Now, a lot of times when you have kind of a Bayesian framework for models, where it's like, I'm going to say some models are more likely and some models are less likely, I think that's less likely to happen because, you know, you, you might have a situation where many, many different kinds of models are all equally likely, in which case you're like, yeah, this data set doesn't really help me distinguish between these models, but it's not like one data point is going to cause me to um, raise this model up over uh, above everything else just because somebody told me something false. So that's a good idea. Um, another example, uh, the final example of a type of sampling is stratified sampling which is when you, uh, if you want your data set to look a certain way, again, it's very similar to like target variable sampling, when you sort of paralyze your data into different strata, into different like um, different types, and then you sample each one separately. So again, with the deck of cards, with the lions, you sample the lions and you sample the non-lions, and then you put those two together. So that's, uh, that's one way to go. All right. So those are all the different types of sampling and, that go on. And I think that it's not just something that we do um, in statistical analysis. I actually think we do all of these things in our minds. We're constantly removing things. Our eyes, as they take in light and they process the light and they see things, they're constantly removing a lot of the inputs that come in. Um, and in fact, they're probably doing it in a very uneven way um, to figure out what's important and what's not. And so if you want to be smart, if you want to be a functioning human, your brain does this. Uh, there's nothing you need to do. Your brain is doing it automatically. If you want to be functioning in terms of a, stat, uh, of a machine learning engineer statistician, you need to understand this. But I think there's a middle ground where if you just want to understand the world, you kind of want to use that framework of, okay... Here's a problem. What data am I throwing away? Am I throwing away potentially useful data? Yes, but it's the it's worth the cost. I feel like that sort of framework uh, can be very useful in day-to-day -day life. So my conclusion is, well, first of all, I'm working on an academic paper to figure out how to do Bayesian inference in the presence of uneven sampling. And uh, hopefully I can get interviewed on that. Maybe I could do one of the... Uh, 
my uh, proposed academic lectures on that. Um, I think that we need to understand the value of the data that we're gathering day to day. Are you gathering useful stuff? Are you not constantly reevaluate that? Um, we do have through information theory, which I went through all the way back in episode 19, I did an episode on it of like how valuable data is in terms of like how surprising is it to us to see this? Because when you get something that's surprising, it's like, okay, I learned something new about the universe that uh, I didn't know before. But I think it's not enough because uh, we generally design algorithms to understand which errors are worse. And this needs to apply to, you know, just because something is surprising it might not change my view of the world enough to cause me to make less errors. And so um, uh, engineers understand that. So we kind of need to understand that when we're trying to understand the value of a piece of information. Um, finally, we don't really know the information content of a data point. We don't know how surprising it is. Uh, we, we don't know how surprising it's going to be as we're deciding to include it or not. So you can't really, you, you can't really pre-processing, you don't really have, you can't really apply information theory to it as well. So it's hard to know um, information pre-sampling. Um, I'm kind of suspecting, as I look into some of this, that in some decades from now, we might have a new field or a new theory on the value of not yet processed information. Seems like a very important field to invent in the information age, like, hey, um, What's my, what's my theory on uh, how to decide if information is likely to be good or not? My theory and my strategy for gathering information. Uh, that seems to be um, really important to like formalize that and to think about that. And I think it's possible that um, uh, a new field might emerge. You know, hey, we talked about this in episode 19. Once information theory itself was just in its infancy, so... Um, now, uh, now in the current, uh, in, in the current climate, maybe, uh, a new theory on the value of information might take its place. Just an idea. Let that ruminate a little bit and tell me what you think at maximum.locals.com. That's it for my solo show today. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. And, uh, next time, I don't know what I'm going to do next time. Next time I come back from my vacation, I'm going to, I know I'm behind on guests. I'm going to try to get more guests and, um, and uh, try to get Aaron back on the show. And uh, I am also behind on uploading videos. You're going to see a lot of new videos, and uh, you're really going to like the new uh, podcast studio. So we're, we're working on that. Very exciting. All right. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at maximum.locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.